Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm back for the uh, New Books Network, the Native American Studies channel. Today, we have Professor Jenny Hale Pulsifer. She's a professor at Brigham Young University. She's currently a fellow at the Huntington Library in sunny California. Welcome, Professor Pulsifer. Thank you. Glad to be here. So today we're going to be discussing her new book, Swindler Sachem, The American Indian Who Sold His Birthright, Dropped Out of Harvard, and Con the King of England. So, first off, how did, it's published, by the way, by uh, Yale University Press. So, how did you come up with this, this cover? What does the cover uh, derive from? The cover, um, you probably can, those of you who have the cover can see that there's a uh, kind of a bead. It almost looks like uh, native trade beads or something around the outside. That was actually taken from a book that was published back in the 17th century. Um, the idea for the cover, since we didn't have any images that were actually associated with John Wampus, or um, and there are very few images of natives in the 17th century uh, anyway, um, that we thought we'd kind of model the cover after uh, an old book. Um, and as you know, books in the 18th and 19th century particularly often have really long titles, and this one has a fairly long title too, so it seemed to fit. So uh, going into the book itself, what prompted you overall to study the life of John Wampus, and what was your approach to, the, to his biography? In answering this question, can you recapitulate his vignette in your previous book, as well as the purposes of the appendices at the end of this biography? Sure. Um, The vignette that you mentioned um, was an incident that I ran across when I was researching my first book. Um, It was a court case that described a native man, John Wampus, Uh, appearing in front of the residents of Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, on September 27th, 1677. Now, this is in the kind of the aftermath of King Philip's War. And in fact, King Philip's War, a a devastating conflict between English and Native peoples in New England, um, is still raging in the northern part of, um, of the area in Maine and New Hampshire. So, English people are definitely nervous, uh, afraid that the war is going to come back into their area. And suddenly, John Wampus stands up in front of the crowd and starts haranguing them and threatening them. Um, He tells them that uh, soon the Indians will attack them. Um, He says, you will feel the Indians ere long. Um, He derides their political standing. So he says basically that they're going to get taken over by the crown. And he claims that he's a loyal subject of the crown and that they aren't. So he's saying things that threaten them both physically and politically. And I was just shocked when I came across this document that there would be a person who felt bold enough and thought he was safe enough to make these kind of claims in front of a crowd of nervous and possibly potentially violent English colonists. So I wanted to know more about him. Um, So in the course of um, finishing my first book, I uh, thought of some different research projects and decided I did, in fact, want to find out more about John Wampus if there was more to be found out. So... um, I started looking around and documents started cropping up. Um, I realized that surprisingly for a man who is virtually unknown to the modern world, either among native 
or um, other communities, including the scholarly community, um, he left a pretty clear trail. So I've been studying that trail, and that that's what led to this book. Um, you asked about the purposes of um, the appendices at the end of his bio- of this biography. Um, at the end of the book, I've got three different appendices. One is a collection of the land sales of John Wampus and his wife, Anne Prask. Um, I wanted to show the details of that because they form a very important part of my narrative. I also listed a bunch of people and places associated with John Wampus and a brief chronology of his life. The reason for that is this is a fairly complicated story. Lots of unusual and unfamiliar names, um, lots of intersections of different communities of people. And I wanted readers to have a place where they could turn to orient themselves to figure out, okay, who's part of this group? Who's part of that group? How, how does John Wampus fit into these various groups? So it's intended to, to help make it a little bit easier to navigate. In addition to those three appendices at the end of the book, um, I created a digital archive that has 21 tables and lists associated with John Wampus. I came across all kinds of interesting information in the course of writing this book about um, native slavery, native scholars, uh, native land sales, uh, women that I couldn't fit in the book. And I wanted it to be available to people who were interested in the topics and to scholars who might want to use the information that I was unable to use for their own projects. So, um, one of the items there is a detailed timeline of John Wampus, including transcriptions of primary documents related to him. So um, anyone who wants to see these items, just Google John Wampus Digital Archive and it should come up. Now, in the book, you argue that for a Puritan minister named John Elliott, the movement from outward things, behavior and material considerations, to inward things, faith in Christ, was the goal of conversion. In Eliot's view, two of the Indians who had clearly moved from outward action to inward belief were John Wampus's parents. Now, can you provide Native and English perspectives on the goals of conversion, as well as the factors that induced his parents to convert? Sure. Um, Let's start with a Native perspective. There are some historians, including Lynn Fisher at Brown University, who argue that the word conversion is not the right word to use for what Natives did when they accepted Christianity, because it implies a wholesale transformation, when in fact many Natives embraced some aspects of Christianity and not others. They also preserved aspects of Native belief and practice even after being baptized as Christians. So um, that differed from the English view. The English perspective did expect that kind of wholesale transformation. Um, Eliot's saying he wants Native people to acquire faith, not just adopt ritual patterns. And part of the reason why they made this kind of emphasis was to distinguish themselves from the Catholics. There was a lot of hostility between Catholics and Protestants in this time period. And the Protestants were always charging the Catholics with doing things like baptizing Native peoples on their deathbeds. Um, It was also this, this idea that they were looking for a whole conversion, not just a surface level conversion, was a way to justify the fact that they'd been fairly slow in getting around to teaching and um, baptizing Native peoples. Um, they also had a view of conversion that combined the cultural and spiritual aspects of conversion. So for instance, they thought that to be truly converted, Indians, and I'm using that word Indian here because it was the term that both Native people and English colonists used at the time. So I use it in my book interchangeably with Native and with tribal names. Um, Anyway, to be truly converted, they believed that Indians had to adopt English lifestyles. So, for instance, they needed to give up seasonal migration because it would take them away from their weekly church worship um, in a particular covenanted congregation. So 
very different ideas of what it meant to be converted. John Eliot is the one who writes about John Wampus's parents becoming converted. And he says that they chose conversion out of true belief. Now, we have to take a step back here and acknowledge the fact that he's writing about them for an English audience over across the ocean in England, who he hopes are going to be inspired to donate funds for the missionary effort. So the purpose is in itself creates a bias, and we really need to look for other evidence to support his claim. One potential piece of evidence is the fact that John Wampus, as a youth, ends up living in the English town of Roxbury with John Eliot's friend Isaac Heath. Eliot describes um, John Wampus's father, Wampuas, visiting him in the year 1646 and asking him to find English homes for several Native children, including his own son. Now, John Wampus doesn't immediately go to live in an English family. Um, Eliot actually discourages that. But by 1651, John is living in the Heath home in Roxbury. And Eliot says that the reason Wampuas wanted this was that he wanted these children to uh, be raised in English homes and learn the Christian religion. Now, even if that was a reason, which it certainly could have been, there may have been other reasons that Eliot didn't state. For instance, Native communities were being devastated by disease, and all they had to do was look at the English communities to see that they were being less affected. So Wampuas may have seen Roxbury as a place where his son could be protected. He may have also wanted him to acquire English language and cultural knowledge in order to return to his community as a, as a mediator. And John Wampus, in fact, did later fill that role. Um, he may have wanted to help cement the friendship with the English during a difficult transitional time. And this would have been seen as a way of doing that. All of these reasons, both religious and community survival strategies, could have coexisted. Let's focus for a minute on uh, John Wampus's wife, a Mahican speaker named Anne, Anne Prask. So she lost her father. Um, how did she lose her father and then fall into child bond slavery to Joshua Hughes at the end of the Pequot War? This connection between Anne Prask and John Wampus was one of the most interesting discoveries during my research. Um, actually prompted by a colleague, Anne Little, who suggested that maybe I look for Anne Prask, who I hadn't been able to find, um, at least her earlier years, in the Pequot War captives. And I thought, oh, that's way too early. But I started looking and, in fact, did find her. The Pequot War was a conflict between English colonists and the Pequot Indians and their allies from 1636 to 1637. Over the course of the war, English armies attacked or took captive a number of Native people who were non-combatants and non-Pequots in addition to the combatant Pequots. Anne Prask was one of these people taken captive. Her father, a man named Romanock, was living among the Sasqua Indians in what's now present-day Fairfield, Connecticut. He was described as a Native captain, so he was probably a man of status and military prowess. And he was also said to have wives in several locations, including Anne Prask's mother, who lived in Mohican country. When that woman died, Romanock sent for Prask to come live with him at Sasqua. And this seems to have happened when Anne was about five years old. Shortly after her arrival, the Pequot Indians who were fleeing the massacre at Mystic Fort, kind of the climactic battle of the Pequot War, arrived at Sasqua seeking shelter. And both the Pequots and the Sasqua Indians retreated into Manakamak Swamp. This was the site of what became known as the Swamp Fight of the Pequot War. The English surrounded the swamp, and there was some fighting and then later they negotiated the surrender of the women and children inside the swamp who became slaves to the English and their native allies. The native male soldiers inside the swamp, including Romanock, knew that according to uh, traditional warfare practice, uh, 
that the English followed, they would be executed if they surrendered. So they broke free and fled to the north. Prask and other captives were taken to Boston, where Joshua Hughes acquired her for service in his home. It's not clear how long it took Prask and her father Romanock to reestablish contact, but we do know that he granted his land at Sasqua. By that time, it had become an English town of Fairfield. He granted this to her in 1660, which was 23 years after she was captured. Can you really briefly elucidate uh, Native peoples and English families' perspectives on the aims and purposes of Algonquin child servitude? Yes. um, Native people clearly um, saw servitude, at least slavery particularly, as an odious status. Um, Many women and children were taken captive in the Pequot War, uh, several hundred. Most of them ended up either dying in captivity or running away. Um, So English people reporting on these slaves um, commented on the fact that they, that they did run away, that they didn't stay in slavery for long. So, you know, if you run away, it's clearly not a state that you, that you welcome. There are also reports that family members searched out children who were being held in servitude and, um, kidnapped them, I guess you might say, took them back into their families. So, so slavery itself was not, uh, a pleasant status, one that they wanted to get out of if they could do it by any means. There were other forms of Algonquian child servitude, though. There were temporary um, statuses, uh, which could be voluntary. Although when I say voluntary, there were often significant pressures um, from the English to place children in in their service, um, or because of uh, problems with uh with death in families that led to this death or debt, which could lead to servitude. In these temporary states of service, Native people sometimes could find advantages. Let me give you an example. That's um, Anthony Trey was John Wampus's uncle. And as a young man, his brothers had been baptized into the Christian religion, and Anthony had not yet. His brothers urged him to go live in an English family and learn a trade. In fact, they said, maybe you could learn the blacksmithing trade. So finally, he thought, I would like to learn that trade. So that's something that they saw as potentially useful. Go live with a family, learn to speak English, learn a trade. So he goes to live with a family. But when he tells them that he wants to learn how to be a blacksmith, the family says, no, the, the, the father is a blacksmith. And he says, no, I'm not going to teach you to be a blacksmith because then you can repair guns and you might be a threat. Anthony's understandably offended by this and leaves that man's home, but later goes to live with another home and learns um, various things. So there could be some advantages, but also a lot of um, disadvantages and uncomfortable cultural interactions arising out of this servitude. The English perspective was was different. They thought that child servitude went hand in hand with missionary work and with what they called their civilizing um, project. They wanted to bring the native peoples to live and believe like English people. Some of the children who were sent to live in English homes, were enrolled in grammar schools. Now, a grammar school was a school where grammar, specifically Latin and Greek grammar, were taught in preparation for entering Harvard College. So a a handful of children were expected to prepare themselves for Harvard, go there, become ministers, and return to serve in their native communities. Again, all part of that missionary process. In addition to those children, though, other children were just needed for their labor. Labor was always a problem in colonial New England. 
Um, they never had as many servants as they needed. And in the aftermath of the Pequot War, as these women and children are being brought into English communities, there are lots of letters and requests for this particular female or this particular child. People are very eager to obtain um, their help. Girls were expected to work domestically in, in the homes to assist mothers who had a lot of work to do. Boys were expected to help um, on the farm. Um, there are many comments in petitions and other documents of the period where English people who are being asked to give up their servants, for instance, in the time period around King Philip's War when Native people were considered threats, um, they comment on how serviceable a certain boy or girl had been and how difficult it would be to replace their labor if they had to give them up. Um, Prask specifically, who gets taken into the home of John Wampus, or not John Wampus, sorry, Joshua Hughes in Roxbury, um, is a domestic servant. She gets brought into this home when Hughes and his wife, Mary, are kind of newlyweds. They haven't had any children yet, but children start being born into the family. And then soon after the children are born, the mother becomes quite ill and unable to really do a lot of work. So Prask becomes kind of the primary uh, female helper in the home, uh, both providing childcare and probably cooking meals and doing many other things. Her service is vital to the Hughes family. She lives just a few houses away from the Heath home in Roxbury, which is where John Wampus lives. And so undoubtedly, both of them living in these English homes is how they become acquainted with each other. You already touched on this, but when exactly did John Wampas enroll in the Indian College at Harvard? And then if possible, could you please also explain uh, the curriculum, for example, language, and then the uh, conflict with uh, tutor Joseph Brown that um, may or may not have contributed to John Wampas's dropping out of Harvard? John was one of a handful of Native youth, as I mentioned, who went through a long and challenging course of preparation for Harvard that included home instruction in English speaking and reading. He would have received this instruction um, from the Heaths themselves, Elizabeth Heath particularly. Enrollment in a grammar school, and then after a number of years when they showed sufficient proficiency in in Latin and Greek, they could enroll in Harvard. Um, his instruction in home, in the home, began probably in about 1651. And then he spent a number of years in the grammar school, both in Roxbury and then later he seems to have transferred to the rock, uh, to the grammar school at Cambridge because the schoolmaster there was considered kind of an expert in preparing Native students for Harvard. Once he entered Harvard, which took place in 1665, he would have been expected to do all of his studies in Latin, meaning that he's reading books in Latin when he's answering questions and participating in what they called disputations. He would have ex been expected to speak in Latin. But in addition to Latin, he was expected to keep studying Greek and also Hebrew and Chaldaic. Um, it was a very difficult curriculum, and there's no evidence that the curriculum for Native students was any different from the curriculum for English students. There were a couple of students at Harvard College who had been brought there with a the specific purpose of becoming tutors to the Native students. These were the sons of a uh, an adept translator who lived in Connecticut. And they were supposed to kind of be a bridge between the students um, and the rest of the college. But they were also evidence of the fact that gets stated in a number of different records of the time that the corporation uh, for the propagation of the gospel in New England, which was the organization that was funding the native students at Harvard, wanted to preserve their native language. They didn't want them to forget how to speak Nipmuc or Massachusetts or whatever language they were speaking. And so having native speaking tutors was supposed to help with that. So Joseph Brown was 
a Harvard graduate who stayed on at Harvard as a tutor. So a tutor was a former student who then becomes an instructor to new students. He was um, a very wealthy young man, one of the few students at Harvard who um, paid kind of double tuition and as a result got uh, special privileges, got to sit at the high table and, and various other things like that. So kind of an elite young man. Joseph would have been expected to supervise the education of the students assigned to him, and John Wampus was apparently one of those students. One of the really interesting documents that um, I came across during my study of this book um, was a, a Greek textbook. Um, I mean, a Latin textbook, sorry. It was Cicero's Deofikis, um, so completely in Latin. And at the beginning of the book, on the title page, it says, John Wampus, his book. It's written in on this title page. So clearly this was one of the books that John used when he was at Harvard. And in fact, it even includes the date. It says, John Wampus, his book, 1665. So he was using this book, but he was also doodling in this book. And there are a number of really interesting doodles um, in the front pages and sometimes along the margins. One of them is uh, some doodling, some writing of words in Latin. And these words um, translate to, to say, I cherish a desire to be at sea. So John Wampus later leaves Harvard and becomes a sailor. And to find this phrase in the book was fascinating. I imagined that he had been sitting, you know, supposed to be doing his Latin homework. And instead he's writing and doodling in the margins and he writes, I cherish a desire to be at sea. Well, when you look at the writing, and I include a picture, a photograph of this page in the book, there's a place where right beneath that Greek or that Latin phrase, it says, um, John Wampus is a fool for writing, and then it gives in Latin, I cherish a desire to be at sea. Then the John is scribbled out. And on top of where it said John Wampus, it says Joseph Brown. So now it reads Joseph Brown is a fool. So I'm imagining what happened is Joseph Brown caught him doodling, wrote in the book that you're a fool for having this feeling. Why would you ever want to leave Harvard and go to sea? And after he leaves, John Wampus scribbles out his his Joseph Brown's writing, John Wampus is a fool, and writes in Joseph Brown. So now it reads, Joseph Brown is a fool. Really interesting. One of the very few glimpses we get into John's mind in this time period. There's one more interesting glimpse in the kind of front pages of this Latin textbook. There is a sketch of a meeting house. And it's clearly the Cambridge Meeting House because it's uh, Cambridge Meeting House was a specific shape with a bell tower on top, and John draws that. And then he writes, you know, cat, rat, hat, you know, various things like that. But then he also writes on this image, um, John Savage, his meeting house, the king of it, I say. I looked at that phrase and I thought, you know, he's clearly kind of mocking the idea of a native person becoming the king of a meeting house, or in other words, the minister, the person who's in charge at the meeting house. And the fact that he uses the word savage seems to reflect some of the attitudes that he encountered while he was at Harvard. The president of Harvard himself, Charles Chauncey, wrote describing the native students there that they were filthy savages. And it's hard to imagine that he wouldn't have disclosed that same kind of attitude to John. So John both seems to be disenchanted with the idea of becoming a minister, perhaps because he had learned that native ministers were paid 
much, much less than English ministers, even though they had the same education. Um, he has some kind of conflict with Joseph Brown, and um, he's surrounded by people who tend to look down on him and his fellow Native scholars. These and perhaps other reasons led him to leave Harvard um, to become a sailor uh, at some point point in the next couple of years, but certainly by 1668. You then crucially contend that in addition to aggregating small native payments for soil and the uh, transatlantic social ne- networks, which we'll discuss in a minute, John Wampus aimed to get paid for land that would soon become impossible for Indians to hold and to perhaps create lingual wrangling and overlapping English town grants and in later Nipmuc land sales. Now, following this argument, how and why did Anne Prass reunion with her father, as well as her subsequent marriage to John Wampus, result in Wampus's initial acquisition and sale of land near the Oxitec River? In addition, can you briefly comment on how, how and why this transaction and his subsequent land sales either as an advisor or a landowner via partable inheritance, demonstrate his legal code switching. Yes. Let me give you a little bit of background first. One of the native strategies for land preservation that I discuss discuss in this book is legal code switching. So that's um, one of the main themes of the book is efforts to preserve native land. What legal code switching means is that a person who's familiar with the legal ideology and practices of their own and of another culture could switch back and forth between the two systems, borrowing practices and understandings as they served their interest. John Wampus was adept at this, but other natives used it as well. For instance, while they had the power to do so, natives insisted that all traditional landowners receive payment for land that was sold to the English. Multiple times in the mid to late 17th century, natives appear in English courts claiming that they were traditional users who had not been paid. And often in response, the English would supply them with another payment called a confirmation, usually a very small payment, but it did give them something. The English complained about the frequency of these confirmations, but the fact that they recognized the right of traditional users, as well as the right of sachems to dispose of land without a uh, uh, dispose of land with these users' consent, meant that even lands long settled by English colonists could be challenged if traditional users or a sachem who had not consented to sale showed up later on. By claiming the land at Aspatuck or Fairfield, John Wampus was not necessarily trying to repossess the land, which had had English people living on it by the time he claims it for a generation, but um, he's trying to get paid for the land and at a much higher price than natives could usually command. He seems to have arranged for his Roxbury neighbor, Prask, called Anne Prask, or Anne by the English, to reunite with her father, Romanock, who Wampus claimed was a sachem. So again, he's he's connecting to native landways by using this connection and receive his land by grant. Then John Wampus married Prask, which gave him full claim on her land through the English practice of coverture. So you can clearly see the code switching here. John's skill in code switching led his own kin to employ him to secure their title to Nipmuc lands in the 1670s. He also used multiple overlapping sales of Nipmuc land to English buyers as a way of complicating their possession, perhaps as revenge against people like Ephraim Curtis, who obtained Nipmuc Nipmuc land without any evidence of payment to the traditional owners. What were other reasons that John chose to leave Harvard for the sea in 1668? And what were the costs and benefits, including alcohol consumption, of his engagement with a transatlantic maritime community? Well, besides what I already mentioned, um, his conflicts with his tutor and perhaps others at Harvard and his um, not wanting to follow the ministerial path, John may have needed money. Um, 
and he may have had some conflicts with his wife. At an, in one part of the the book, I talk about the fact that his wife and he um, have arguments that are made worse by his um, his drinking. So, in terms of money, Indian ministers received far less pay than English ministers. The corporation uh, paid the salaries, and they paid native ministers five to ten pounds per year. Now, this is in contrast to John Eliot's payment of fifty pounds per year just for ministering to the natives part time. So, they're getting far, far less money, and this is a consistent pattern. You can see it in Indian land sales as well. The English paid native people far less than they needed to sustain their lifestyles, particularly after their land went into English hands. Now, it may just be that the English were stingy or thrifty, but it's got to be more than that. It seems to be linked to their perception that Indians were uncivilized, so they didn't need the things that an English salary was designed to support. Things like books and uh, furniture and uh, clothing. They just don't think that the Native people have any kind of need for those kinds of objects, and they their, their payments to them certainly reflect it. Um. One of the consequences of John's engagement with the transatlantic maritime community may have been alcohol abuse. We need to point out that native patterns of alcohol consumption were very different from European patterns. Europeans were social drinkers. Uh, They drank pretty much every day. And it was kind of something that they did with neighbors and friends. They'd go to the local tavern and have a drink. Natives were not social drinkers. They only used alcohol occasionally, and they drank with a specific purpose, and that was to become drunk in order to facilitate a state that was open to spiritual knowledge. So they believed that they could have more kind of communion with uh, with spiritual beings if they entered a kind of liminal state through alcohol consumption. Now, it's very possible that John Wampus, by going into the notoriously hard-drinking maritime community, adopted European social drinking habits and um, became a much more frequent drinker. His kin lose a lot of their faith in him, actually all of their faith in him, and charge him with with, uh, selling land in order to get money to get drunk. So... Clearly, he wants more money, and he's spending some of that money on alcohol. And it it works to alienate him from his kin and also from his wife, who he fights with because she is angry with him for getting drunk. So uh, moving to his foray in England, can you discuss evidence substantiating the notion that John Wampus's primary purpose for visiting London between 1674 and his 1676 imprisonment for debt was to petition King Charles II for repossession of lands? Yes, this is an interesting time period. Um, John Wampus and his wife, Anne Prask, end up in court in Massachusetts in 1673 and 1674 for basically disturbance of the peace. John had gotten drunk. His wife got angry and she struck him. Um, So they're they're brought up for disturbance of the peace in public. Um, In the aftermath of this, he only appears a couple of times in the records, and then he disappears for several years. And during that time period, he's in London. Um, As I was looking through hunting for records that had anything to say about John Wampus and Anne Prask, um, some of the hints that I saw were petitions that he sends to the king. So there's a 1676 petition in which John says that the Massachusetts officials had prohibited him from selling Indian land in response to complaints from his kin. And uh, his kin also, in other documents, repeat their complaints against him and say that they don't want him to have any anything to do with selling land 
anymore. You know, they had once hired him to supervise getting titles to their land, but they, they believed he had abused that position. So the petition and their documents say that he had been cut off from his main source of income, land sales, and the only way that he could see to to rectify that problem was to appeal over the heads of colony officials to the king. So late in the process of writing the book, I came across one other really intriguing piece of evidence, and this was in an account book that was um, believed to belong to a wealthy Boston merchant named Robert Gibbs. In May to June of 1674, Robert Gibbs credits John Indian with about 30 days of labor, so kind of day labor for Robert Gibbs. And he pays John Indian one shilling a day. And it's interesting to note that that's less than half of the going rate for an English laborer. And it's equivalent to the pay that women receive. So again, here we see an example of an English person, a merchant, assuming that even if they're doing the same kind of work as an English day laborer, native day laborers should be paid much, much less. Um, After he recorded John's earnings, he recorded what John Indian purchased with his credit. What he purchased was three and three quarter yards of white cloth, 13 and a half yards of black woolen frieze, a shirt, and a gown. And now a gown, that sounds like a woman's dress, but it was also the name for a loose outer garment that men would wear over their clothes. This is formal wear. If you wanted to go to church or dress up, you wore black and white. That's where we get the stereotype of the pilgrim. They didn't always wear black and white, but they did when they sat for their portraits. So he was getting formal wear, not sailor's clothes. That's the very last time he appears on any record in Massachusetts. And then the next thing we know, he's petitioning the king. That's why I believe that his primary purpose for visiting London was to petition the king so that he could get the right to sell his lands again. Now, where and how did John Wampus meet the two Massachusetts agents and those two nitbook boys in his account of this royal audience with King Charles II? Why did this royal audience make such a powerful impression on John Wampus? And why did he need to take the oaths of allegiance as a subject? This is another interesting part of his story. John Wampus was very savvy. He was well acquainted with English culture and politics and religion and also native culture, politics and religion. And that's why he recognized that jumping over the heads of the colonial authorities to go see the king was a a smart thing to do. He was able to observe that Massachusetts in this time period was in trouble with the royal government. They were considered dangerously independent, not completely obedient to the king, not fully loyal to the king. And so um, around 1664, the king sent a couple of agents over to investigate Massachusetts and the other colonies to determine just how loyal they were. And Massachusetts did not come out of this investigation looking good. And in fact, the king began proceedings to revoke their charter. So about the time that John Wampus was in England, There were also two agents from Massachusetts, William Stoughton and Peter Bulkley, who were there to plead with the king for the renewal of their charter. Now, John Wampus was there ahead of them. And there was one really clear way that you could find out where other New Englanders were in London. And that was by going to the Royal Exchange. The Royal Exchange was a a center for international commerce. And New England merchants and ship captains went there so often that a portion of the central courtyard was actually called the New England Walk. So all he would have had to do if he had heard about the agents being in London, or even if he happened to be in the Royal Exchange for another reason, was go to where the New Englanders were and he would be able to meet them. 
it seems very likely that when he encountered these agents, they realized that he could be of use to them. John Wampus was Nipmuc, and he could speak the Nipmuc language. The agents had brought with them to London two Nipmuc boys. These were boys who were taken captive during King Philip's War, which went from 1675 through about 1678. They had been given English clothing and brought across the ocean to present to the king as examples of the care that the Massachusetts colonists were taking for the native people in their midst. Now, they had been taken captive in the war, and apparently they were terrified to go to England. Um, in one letter, Daniel Gukin, who worked a lot with the native peoples, said that um, he needed a secure place to keep the boys before they left for England because he was afraid they were going to run away. So these boys, who may not have even spoken English, needed someone to communicate between them and the king, to translate for them as they talked about uh, what the English had done or maybe had not done for them. So he seems to be taken along with the agents on their first visit with the king. And while he's there, he gets to witness how the king feels about these agents. And they're basically humiliated before the king. They get on their knees and beg the king to renew their charter, and the king refuses. He says to them that they have violated their charter, and he probably rebukes them for some of the things that they've done. And as a result, John Wampus knows that New England is in trouble, that they're about to lose their charter. Later, when he returns to Massachusetts and stands up in front of those Cambridge colonists, he says, New England hath lost the day and it is known in Old England. So he's, he's kind of twisting the knife, letting them know that they are in political trouble. The fact that he was able to witness this humiliation seems to have emboldened him to challenge colonial authority when he goes back home. He seems to believe that the colonists who are in peril of losing their charter would not dare attack a subject of the king who had taken the Oath of Allegiance. The Oath of Allegiance was a demonstration of loyalty to the crown, and John Wampus takes that oath while he's visiting the king in London. Now, it's important to recognize that the Crown had been putting pressure on the Massachusetts colony for years to administer the Oath of Allegiance because they wanted them to demonstrate their loyalty to the Crown. The oath specifically st stated that loyalty to the King was the foremost kind of loyalty. Massachusetts officials had resisted giving this oath because they already had their own oath of loyalty to the colony. And it placed loyalty to the colony and to the Massachusetts charter foremost. By taking the oath at court, John Wampus was demonstrating not only that he was a loyal subject of the crown, but that he was more loyal than these Massachusetts officials who had been so reluctant to take the oath. When he later harangues the Cambridge colonists, um, he contrasts his own loyalty to their disloyalty. He says, I am a loyal subject of the crown. And a couple of the people in the crowd say, well, we're loyal subjects too. And John Wampus answers, he questioned that. He knows that they're in trouble. And that's one of the, the ways that he undermines their, their political standing by pointing it out when he talks to them. After finally returning to New, New England, only to learn of his wife's death by scalding, if I recall, why and how did John Wampus sell his deed for a Boston home to the Hughes family? And why and how did he subsequently emulate the qualities of a sachem to younger Native peoples? Did this emulation, which included alcohol distribution, ultimately land him in jail? Why or why not? There's a... Uh striking scene um, in the aftermath of John's return. He comes back to Massachusetts in May of 1677. And he goes to his house 
and finds that there's someone living in it. And it's the Hughes family. He knows the Hughes family. This is, again, the family that Anne Prask, his wife, had been enslaved to when she lived in Roxbury. Now the Hughes family lives in Boston, and they are living in John's house. And he discovers that Anne has died. She'd been scalded. Being scalded in this time was a fairly common accident. And it could lead to infection, which led usually to death in this time period. So she has has died, and they are in possession of the home. He probably challenges their possession, um, but within a couple of days, he signs the home over to them. He deeds it to them for a very small fee, a very small payment of 20 pounds. So why does he do this? I, I looked at the various circumstances surrounding this sale, and my best guess is that John Wampus was responding to the particular circumstances at that time that the Hughes family probably reminded him of. Just in the very month that John Wampus arrived back in Massachusetts, the general court passed a law prohibiting Native people from living in Boston. Um, They were still nervous about uh, potential threats, and so they they prohibited natives from living in Boston. So even if John Wampus has a home in Boston, he can't live in it. And if he attempted to, he may have been imprisoned because the the law adds that and says any Indians found in Boston will be imprisoned. So they probably told him, you you might as well send it, sell it to us. You have no use for it. You can't live here safely. So he leaves and uh, goes out to live uh, with friends in, in neighboring communities, friends and kin. While he's living with them, he starts hanging around with a lot of the younger people, talking with them about the injustice of the English, about their, their unfair treatment of Native people in land sales and other activities. On one occasion, he brings an entire barrel of hard cider to Natick, one of the Christian Indian communities outside of Boston, and ends up getting 12 or 13 men and women drunk. And so he's doing all of these things in the time leading up to that incident on September 27th, 1677, where he harangues the people in Cambridge. In the aftermath of his his bold speeches to these people in Cambridge, they call for a constable and he ends up in jail. So all of the activities he's been engaging in, which can be interpreted as emulating the qualities of a sachem. Sachems were expected to be good orators and they were expected to show courage and boldness in facing an enemy. So the way that John spoke to the Cambridge townspeople may have been an effort to emulate the qualities of a sachem. In addition, sachems were expected to be generous and to redistribute the tribute that they received by virtue of their office. When he brings this this barrel of cider to Natick and shares it with many of the people there, that was a way of demonstrating his generosity. And both this and his bravery would have been ways to show that he was fit for the office of a sachem. Now, John Wampus was not a sachem. His kin very clearly say he is not a sachem and therefore he does not have the right to sell land. But John Wampus was related to families of sachems. even the people who deny that he's a sachem acknowledge that. They acknowledge the fact that he has a claim as a traditional user to land at Hassanamisset, which is the ancient seat of Nipmuc sachems. So it's possible that he actually has a claim to being a sachem, but, but lacks the support and consent that was required to actually serve in the office of a sachem. Um, his kin and other elders in the Nipmuc community denied that to him because of what they saw as his abuses and his selling of Nipmuc land and his drunkenness. So, um, so 
he maybe is making a bid to the younger people, not the elders, not his kin, to recognize him as a sachem in this time period. Why did King Charles II in 1679 offer a second letter of support for John Wampus? And what does this purported support illuminate, or I guess not illuminate, about the subject status of Native peoples, New England officials, and royally appointed officials in the English Empire? John Wampus gets a second letter of support from King Charles II, and this is in the aftermath of his second trip to England. When he goes to Massachusetts from his first trip in England, he bears a letter of support from Charles II. And any reasonable person, uh, reasonable person would assume that that would convince the Massachusetts officials to let him go back to selling his land. It doesn't. John Wampus appears before Governor Leverett of Massachusetts. Governor Leverett says... I'm going to refer you to uh, a a native court. There are courts that are specifically set up among the native people, um, the the Christian native people at this time. So he appears before this court. All of the elders of the Nipmucks and his kin show up and testify against him, deny that he is a sachem, deny that he has any more right than other common people to sell the land. So they acknowledge He has a claim to the land, but not the right to sell it. And so he is left without any relief. And he's very angry. Part of the reason that he goes around uh, talking to the young people, the young Native people, about how unjust the English is, is because of this disappointment. He goes down to Connecticut, where he has land that he got through his wife, Prask. And he has the same reception. Uh, He gets thrown in jail there too. The Connecticut officials um, deny that he has any right to that land. And in the aftermath of that, he decides that he has no alternative but to appeal to the crown again, which is the only kind of English uh, governing body that has shown him any kind of support or respect. So he manages to get out of jail in Connecticut and goes to New York where he catches a ship and goes back to England, um, submits a second petition to the crown and, uh, and then ends up dying in England of some kind of disease. Nevertheless, that letter of support does end up back in Connecticut. Um, someone carries it to Connecticut and the letter of support is very interesting because it doesn't just pertain to John Wampus. In response to his second petition to the crown, um, it actually demands that the colonial officials provide justice for all Native peoples of New England. So it seems like the crown's getting a little fed up here. They've already met with John Wampus back in 1676. Here, they have a second complaint for from him in 1679, and they they want the colonial officials to treat the native peoples as subjects of the crown. Now, we tend to think of subject as a lower status, but in this time period, it was a status that was reciprocal and valuable. A subject had a reciprocal relationship with the crown. The crown offered loyalty to the subject and in return, um, or the subject offered loyalty to the crown and in return, the crown offered protection, both physical and political protection. And that's what Charles II demands in his letter to um, the Connecticut officials in response to John's second petition. Um, That's that, that same kind of approach was something that the Crown had explained to the Massachusetts officials that they expected clear back in 1664 when the royal agents came to investigate the colony. And it seems likely that that this letter from the Crown, which was proclaimed at the sound of a trump in several different locations in the colony of Massachusetts, was something that John Wampus was aware of. He uses similar language in his in his various communications with the crown. Now that said, uh, I've said that the crown has showed him respect 
acknowledged him as a subject with rights, given letters to him to support his various appeals in the colonies, they don't actually put their money where their mouth is, you might say. Um, The Crown expected justice. It wanted that justice to be administered in the colonies, but they didn't provide any kind of Crown support. No funds, no troops, nothing to ensure that their wishes were carried out in the colonies. So the Crown is, um, on paper, willing to support Native peoples. Um, They take the moral high ground, but it's a pretty shaky ground because there's no follow-up, no effort to actually um, provide meaningful support. Can you briefly uh, discuss the ailing Wampus's last will and testament and the bequest, the soil bequest is a transfer of sachem rights and how the memory of Wampus is an emulative sachem that we discussed, how it facilitated interest payments to Nipmuc peoples, but also legitimated Sutton and Grafton settlement. Sure. Um, when Wampus is in England the second time, he becomes ill and he fills out a will. And that will is actually in the National Archives in, in England. Um, this will was a legally binding document. Um, the kinds of bequests that he made in the will uh, would be respected by any English court. So it's another example of John Wampus's legal code switching providing a document that has solid legal standing. Now, through most of the 17th and into the 18th century, English courts in the colonies had acknowledged the right of a sachem to dispose of land as long as he or she had the consent of traditional users of the land. If a sachem didn't sign off on transfer, that land transfer could be challenged. So it was in the interests of the English to observe this native practice. So their engaging in some code switching as well. By claiming to be a sachem himself, John was conforming with this practice. And it's worth noting that John's kin, even though they denied he was a sachem, acknowledged that he had a shared right to the land at Hassanamissit. In other words, that land was traditionally held and used by his family. Now, as I said before, Hassanimissit was the ancient seat of the Nipmuc chief sachem. So this again suggests that John may have had a legitimate claim to the sachemship if his kin had acknowledged and supported him, which they didn't. So by referring to himself as a sachem, by using a legally uh, registered will, John was trying to make the bequests that he makes in the will legally binding. Now, those bequests were very interesting. Some of them were to English people, other mariners, and also business people that he had met in England who had lent him money. So perhaps as a way of securing those loans, he had promised them various lands. Um, Some of them he had deeded to them while he was in England. Others he gave to them in the will. So there are a number of bequests to English people, including his physician who helped him in England. But there's another part of the will, which is the most explicit part in terms of what kinds of lands it talks about. And that is a bequest of the land of Hassanamissit, again, the traditional seat of the Nipmuc chief Sachem, to several of his kin, including um, one man who uh, was known to be related to the Nipmuc chief sachem. So he leaves the Hassanimissit land to them and says it's theirs forever as long as they observe and keep all of the rights and privileges that he and his father had kept. So again, he's referring to himself as a sachem. Then he says that um, lands elsewhere, not Hassanimissit, but elsewhere, can be claimed by the English people. So he is specifically excluding Hassanimissit from the lands that he bequeaths to the English, including to two Englishmen who become the executors of the will. Um, So this is his way, I believe, of trying to secure that land of of Hassanimissit to his kin, to his Um, his relatives and friends in Massachusetts um, and to make 
the specific reservation of Hassan and Misset legally binding. Thank you, Professor Pulsifer, for your responses today. I have one quick follow-up question. Do you have any projects planned? Are you uh, planning a vacation? I know you're a fellow at the Huntington. Um, is there anything that you, any projects particularly that you can disclose to us at this time? <laughs> yes, I do. Um, I haven't really taken a vacation. I've I've got a project up and running, and it's a project that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. Um, I'm a Westerner uh, by birth. I was born in Los Angeles, um, and my family lives in the West, in in California and in England, and or not England, <laughs> Utah. Um, my ancestry in Utah includes Shoshone uh, Indian ancestry, and my fourth great grandmother was a woman who was um, Shoshone woman who was married to a French trapper, and then later an American trapper. And I have always wanted to tell her story. So this new project moves ahead in time to the 19th century. It's still kind of frontier, a frontier story in the sense that uh, English settlement is new and native peoples are being displaced. Um, But I'm going to look at the experiences of of my grandmother and her family and the ways that, um, that English settlement and, uh, and race, uh, views of race and religion affected her family and her own life. Sounds like a compelling project. We hope that you remember us for that book. Um, I'd like to. Th- <laughs> I certainly will. I'd like to thank you for your time here at the New Books Network, the uh, Native American Studies Channel. Uh, on behalf of both Professor Pulsifer and uh, the New Books Network, this is Ryan Tripp signing off. Thanks. Thanks.